morning. Um, this is, as Ron said, our second in a series uh, entitled Making Lovers, uh, How God Uses the Normal Struggles of Marriage to Teach Us How to Love. Now, each of you should have a handout, uh, and if you don't, raise your hand, and uh, someone will come around and make sure you get one. Uh, the handout actually is entitled Tension, Distress, and Discomfort. Uh, it should be, I, I didn't realize this until after I met all these copies, anxiety and tension, not that there's that big of a difference, colon, common marital side effects. The greatest command in Scripture is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and <clears throat> to love your neighbor as yourself. The most frequently cited command in Scripture is do not fear. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean don't feel fear and anxiety, but what it does mean is we're not to let fear and anxiety define us and con control us and dictate how we respond to the various situations in which we find ourselves experiencing it. Now, I happen to believe that these two verses are so prominently positioned in Scripture because there's a direct relationship between them. And that relationship is summed up in this statement, that our ability to love, i got to get my water here, I'm taking medication that dries me out until I get, my mouth gets real dry, but our ability to love is directly related with our ability to manage anxiety and tension. Our ability to love is determined by or directly related with our ability to manage and handle anxiety and tension. Nowhere is anxiety and tension more prevalent than whenever two people get together in a relationship and they experience differences around issues that they uh, encounter in the course of their relationship. We talked a little bit about this last week, but I want to share with you a story of a couple who came into my office, Steve and Karen. Steve and Karen had been married for five years, and they came in to talk about the problem that, as Steve put in his own words, was a problem that he had with anger. His wife, Karen, was quiet and demure as he began to explain the situation that had convinced him that he had this problem. He and Karen had both come home from work that day, and they were both tired but looking forward to a relaxing evening together. They couldn't agree on what they wanted to do for dinner. Steve had wanted to order Chinese takeout and bring it in, because he went out for lunch every day, and he was uh, he just wasn't up for going out again. Karen had kind of pressed Steve, saying that she wanted to go out. She didn't really want to mess up the kitchen, uh, and that she thought it would be nice to get out and uh, spend some time out, because when they stayed home, they'd have to clean up the mess. Well, Steve agreed to go out. And when they got to the restaurant, Karen had suggested that they get um, one meal and split it. They could save money if they did this. Uh, Steve said that he was too hungry to just eat half a meal, and so um, she suggested that they each get something and then they could share meals and then both get two different experiences. Uh, he said he really wasn't hungry for anything but his steak, at which point Karen said, reminded him that red meat wasn't really that good for him, and she suggested that he get a good fish dish or a chicken. Well, Steve said he really just wanted, he was really just up for his steak and baked potato dinner. Well, Karen 
was kind of disappointed, and she urged him to consider the fact that at his last uh, physical, that his cholesterol was 220 and 220, and so uh, she thought that fish or chicken would just be a much better selection uh, if his health was something that he was concerned about. Realizing that he was, she wasn't going to give up terribly easily, he acquiesced and went ahead and ordered uh, fish instead of the steak that he'd wanted. When they got their meals, Karen cut a bite of her chicken and placed it on Steve's plate. This is really good. Try it. I think you'll really like it, Steve. <clears throat> Karen asked if she could try a bite of his fish, and he obliged, so she reached over and cut a bite off of his fish and took it. Mmm, this is really yummy. I don't know who made the better choice tonight, Steve, you or me. Well, Steve, several minutes later, she cut her chicken in half and put it on his plate, and she said, you know, I'm not really that hungry. I think you look a lot hungrier than I am. Why don't you go ahead and eat this? You look like you can handle your meal and mine, too. Up to that point, Steve had indicated that he had tried being polite to avoid conflict, but it didn't seem like she was quitting. It seemed like the more that he relented and went along with what she wanted, the more she kept cutting her food and putting on on his plate and taking bites of his. Just then, Karen reached off. She reached over uh, Steve to take off one more bite, and just as she did to reach over, he snapped, and in a rage, in a voice that all around them could hear, now I'm not going to quote exactly what he said because we're in church here, <clears throat> but he said, you have to use your imagination. Would you get your dick hands off of my food? If I'd wanted what you were eating, I would have ordered it. I am sick and tired of you taking my food. Well, Karen was humiliated and furious. She ran out of the restaurant and sat in the car. He, Steve, humiliated as well, asked for the bill, paid it, and left. At that point, Karen looked at me and she said, you know, he didn't have to get so mad. I don't understand why he was so mad. I just wanted to share things with him. I feel so close to him when we share things together. If he had just simply told me what he wanted, I wouldn't have continued doing it. Well, Steve said at that point, well, if you wouldn't have pushed me, I wouldn't have done that and reacted that way. Now, when you hear about this, you know, there's a proverb that says every story sounds true until you hear the other side. Imagine that if you're in a, in a small group of women, and a woman comes into the group and she talks to you about how her husband yells at her and screams at her, especially when she's just trying to be loving and kind and share things. Imagine the picture you get and how you might pray for this woman. Or imagine that you're in a men's group with, with other men, and he talks about how his wife tends to continually push him and override his preferences, and in the process that he just feels uh, invisible and totally controlled. Now, what kind of picture would you get? Now, as I continued to talk to this couple, I looked at them and I said to both of them, 
But this is after I had checked with Karen, and her version of the story was actually pretty similar. So I said, you know, frankly, Steve, you may have a problem with anger, and I don't know if you do or you don't. But this sounds more like a problem that both of you have, managing anxiety and tension in your relationship. And between the two of you, I'm not sure which one of you has more of it. One of you imposes your will on the other and calls it sharing and loving. And the other one refuses to assert your will, thinking that in doing so you'd be rude and impolite and not wanting to be selfish. And then you build it up, build up the pressure in your life, and then you explode. And at that point, the problem is defined as an anger problem. Now, is Karen really being kind and loving in the way she's relating to Steve? I asked Karen, Karen, do you think it makes good sense for you to impose your will on your husband when you're doing the very thing he's asked you not to do or the very thing that's in direct conflict with what he said and think he's going to experience you as loving? She said, well, I just really just want what's best for him. And I said, from whose perspective? Yours or his? Seems that it's more important for you that you're with the husband you want Steve to be than it is for you to learn how to love the man that Steve is showing up as that particular night. Now I want you to think about Steve. Is Steve really being kind and polite, or is he being selfish and disrespecting? By withholding the truth about himself from Karen and appeasing her in order to avoid conflict. See, Steve continued to placate Karen's preferences because, not because he's so kind and loving, but because Steve can't stand it when people are disappointed with him. Steve doesn't like it when people aren't, don't feel good about him for who he is, and so he's constantly making himself into the person he thinks the person that he loves wants him to be. Is Steve's problem an anger problem, or is it a nice guy problem? Steve appeased Karen's demands to try to reduce the anxiety and tension he felt when he was meeting with a disapproving reaction from her. And by in the process, he was being dishonest about himself and being a passive. The irony was, the more dishonest and passive he became in the name of kind and understanding, the more tension would build up on the inside of him. And the more the tension built up on the inside of him, at one point, then he would explode at anger. So I looked at Steve and I said, Steve, is anger the only time you know how to be strong? Is anger the only time you can hold on to your preferences and act strong? Because if you don't know how to be strong apart from your anger, then in a paradoxical way, anger may be the best thing you've got going. Now, I'm not saying that your anger is a good thing and the way you handled your anger was a good thing, but I wonder what it would be like if you ever learned how to be honest and strong about the man that you are without having to rely on anger to do it. I also challenged him about his understanding of kindness. I said, 
you know, what's interesting is what you're doing in the name of kindness is terribly unkind. Because you're not giving her information about herself that if she had, she might be displeased with, but at least it would give her some other options to know how to relate to you, even if they were in ways that weren't necessarily entirely approving of you. <clears throat> now, can you see how the problem that Karen and Steve have that's been defined as anger is really more a problem with how each of them is managing anxiety and tension in a relationship. Now, we see in this vignette two sources of anxiety and tension. Now, if you're copying on your, if you're following on your notes, you should only have the first two lines um, filled out if you want to, not that you have to at all. But don't get, don't get nervous and think, oh, my gosh, you know, where is he now in this thing here? Because I haven't even gotten down to yet what I'm going to talk about this morning. I'm just beginning here in my introduction. Um, but there are two sources of tension, both of which I talked about last week. The first is in their opposite approaches to life. And last week we talked about how in Genesis 2.18, the term corresponding, comp I mean, the term suitable helper, when God says, let's make a suitable helper, really means, the term, means the idea of corresponding complement. Now, this doesn't give us a picture of two people who are just a little different from each other. This gives us a picture of two people who are fundamentally opposite from each other. The differences are very, very profound. And in the same way, we can see in this story, or in this vignette, two people who are very opposite. Now, if you will, let's look at the anatomy of a corresponding complement on our PowerPoint, the first slide. And you can see how Steve and Karen have very different preferences. You can see that on Karen's preferences, which are in the, oh, they're in the red, but Steve's preferences, those on the right-hand side, Steve's preferences should all be in the blue. Um, that was another one of those mistakes I made. But Karen's preferences are to eat out, split a meal, share two different meals, want white meat, and she imposes her will. And what Karen's preferences do is they bring relief and comfort to Karen. But if you look on the bottom, they create anxiety and tension for Steve. Steve's preferences were exactly the opposite. To eat at home, each order separate meals, have their own meals, wants red meat, and appeasing to the other's will. Steve feels relief and comfort from his preferences. And Karen feels anxiety and, and tension and discomfort from Steve's preferences. So the first source of tension is just simply their fundamental differences how they approach life differently. The second source that I mentioned last week is that each of us is married to two people. We're married to the spouse that we're with, and we're married to the spouse that we want. And when those two people are one and the same, marriage is wonderful. But unfortunately, in the times when they're not one and the same, which is 66% of the time, according to very reliable statistics, in normal, healthy, happy marriages, there's tension and anxiety because they're 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 not the same person. And the and the more disparity there is between those two people, in other words, the more the person that we're with is not consistent with the person we want, the greater our tension or distress. See, Karen wanted to eat out, she wanted to split a meal, have two different meals, and white meat. And she wanted to be married to a man who wanted those things. Now, unfortunately, Steve hadn't gotten 
uh, an advanced copy of the script for his role that evening, so he showed up as himself. The result was anxiety and tension. Steve had wanted to eat his own meal, uh, eat in, have red meat, uh, and, and have a wife who loved that for him. Unfortunately, she made the mistake of showing up as herself that evening, and the wife he ended up spending the evening with wasn't anywhere close to the wife he'd wanted to be with that evening. The result for him was anxiety and tension. All of us, by nature, are anxiety-averse. And what that means is, when we experience anxiety and tension, we're going to do whatever we can. We're going to do the easiest thing we can do to try to get rid of it, whatever that means. Now, I want to talk today about anxiety and tension and its role in relationship or in marriage. But before we do that, we have to kind of go back and take uh, kind of a little historical tour through the origins of marriage. And so I want to talk about four things. God's original plan for marriage, the impact of the fall on marriage, how our instinctive reactions to anxiety and tension affect marriage, and lastly, how do we get back to the original plan? I don't know if I'll get through all of this, but we're going to make, uh, I'll make the best attempt to do so, and whatever we don't, we'll continue on next week. Before we uh, can talk a great deal about anxiety and tension and its effect on marriage, we have to understand the original design. Uh, what did God have in mind when he invented marriage in the first place? And, you know, many of us have heard sermons on this. Uh, but if we go back to Genesis 2 in verse 24 and 25, we get a pretty clear picture of what the relationship between the first husband and wife was like. We're told, and the man and his wife shall become one flesh, and they were both naked and unashamed. <clears throat> now, on the surface, this appears to be talking about a physical union between Adam and his new bride. And while this is certainly true, it's important that we unpack this to get a clearer understanding of what's really going on here. What's, what is this really about? Uh, the term becoming one flesh is referring to a type of radical transformation that's going on in this marriage. Each is being radically supplemented by the other, and the differences they each bring to each other is the basis on which that transformation is taking place. Now, let me tell you what I mean by this. I've been married, as I mentioned last week, 25 years. And for 23 years, I hated sushi. Actually, I should say 50, for 52 years, I've hated sushi. Now, I happen to be married to a woman who loves sushi. She loves the opportunity to eat it, and... For years, she tried to convince me that eating sushi would be good for me. Well, I think it's pretty, you know, I, I thought it was pretty disgusting, the idea of eating raw fish. And um, there was nothing about it. I didn't see how my world was going to be a better place if I ever entered into that experience. And so I was always pretty adamant resistant. Unfortunately, my wife was able to poison both of my daughters, one of which is sitting here back tonight, before I could get to them. And so both of my daughters became prejudiced as well. They loved sushi. 
Well, Peggy and the girls would want to go eat sushi for dinner, and they'd ask me to come, and I would say, I'm not going. I mean, I don't really want to do that. And then they'd try to appeal to the whole idea of family loyalty and family you know, This would be a great opportunity for us to be together. But I refused, and there was no way I was going to take part in that experience. Instead, I would opt to stay home and eat something healthier like macaroni and cheese or, or a sandwich or something. And so they would go out. Well, a couple years ago, we were taking part in a family tradition that we've had for about eight years where we get together with uh, uh, family friends and their kids. Uh, and this is around Christmas time. And so the discussion was about where we were going to go. We were going to go out for dinner. Well, eight out of nine people said, let's go eat sushi. Well, I didn't want to be rude or impolite, so, you know, in, my, in the back of my mind, I thought, all right, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to make a huge scene about this, but I'm not really going to eat anything. You know, usually restaurants have crackers or something like that, so I thought, you know, I can have some crackers and butter. And so I decided, okay, let's go. And so we got to the restaurant, and on the way down, Peggy said to me, honey, you've got to try the California roll. I don't know what these things are. And when we got and sat down at the table, Lauren, my oldest daughter, sat right next to me. And she said, Dad, you are going to love the volcano roll. Now, <clears throat> both of those sounded disgusting to me. And so they went ahead and ordered. Well, when we got our California roll and the volcano roll, the volcano roll came. Well, Lauren put a huge, a huge bite of volcano roll on a fork, and she stuck it up to my mouth. And she said, just try it, Dad. Just try it. Well, not wanting to make a scene or be rude, I went ahead and stuck it in my mouth. You know, and I thought I actually could try it, you know, to just put it in my napkin and put it down. But that was the beginning of the lesson. And that was the moment in which I became radically supplemented. I went through a transformation in my life, and from that point on, uh, you see, I didn't want to seem too eager because, you know, I'd already spent 22 years investing myself in prejudice and stubbornness, and so I didn't want to look too much like a fool, you know, so I didn't want to, you know, yeah, it's incredible, and I was just like, oh, that's pretty good, okay. But since then, I look for opportunities to go eat volcano rolls and California rolls. Now, that was a transformation that took place in my life, and I was radically supplemented by my corresponding compliment. What that meant is that my world had expanded in that moment. Now, this is just kind of a mundane little illustration, but this happens in life all the time. My world was supplemented. My world had expanded. It had grown in that experience. And I was now able to enter into a part of life that previously I had never been able to do. I was now able to be a participant in life in a way that I hadn't been before. See, I tasted a part of the world that had I been left to my own devices, I never would have entered into. Because of my corresponding compliment. That's in part what we get in our picture of the first marriage. Now the primary characteristic where that transformation takes place 
really is in the willingness of each person to become naked. Now, certainly that refers to the experience of physical nakedness, but I think it's talking to, about a much more comprehensive experience of nakedness. It's talking about a soul nakedness. And what I mean by soul nakedness is that here are two people who were honest and open about themselves, and they were willing to make themselves known. They weren't trying to manipulate what the other person saw. They were vulnerably transparent. You know, in courtship, courtship is not really about vulnerable transparency. Um, you know, I can't imagine many women who would want to marry me if I said, you know, I have a temper sometimes, and of course I've suffered from depression all my life, uh, but I think I'd make a pretty good spouse. Uh, I tend to be irresponsible, and I don't always tell the truth, because I don't like it when people don't like me. See, courtship really isn't a time when we become naked about who we are. Courtship is really a time when we're trying to cover up because we're trying to sell the deal. It's not until after marriage that we get unclothed, but it's usually not because we've taken our own clothes off. It's usually because, because you can't live around me for too long without starting to see these things. And then my spouse starts taking, wants to take my clothes off, not for that reason, but for a different reason, because she's hoping that I'll see me for who I really am. But here's a couple that came in and voluntarily opened up who they were. They were open and they were transparent. Also, they were they were open to knowing and embracing each other for who they were. They didn't try to control or manipulate who the other person was. They were able to honor each other. Now, it's important to understand, this is a couple who was naked in life, not just in the bedroom. One of the biggest reasons, and I don't see... I, I'm going to make this statement, but don't get too anxious because I'm not going very far into this. But one of the biggest problems with couples in their sexual relationship is they tend to be naked in the bedroom, but not naked in life. They tend to want to be exposed in the bedroom, but not exposed in life. So consequently, when it comes to sex, there's an incongruence. It's as if we're making love to a stranger because this isn't somebody that has fully disrobed about who they are in life. And this is for a whole other conversation. But sex was designed to, to be um, operational in a relationship of comprehensive nakedness. Um, taking our clothes off physically was about the last thing that was taken off because our clothes would already be off in our soul. I'd already be exposed, and I would have done this. So there'd be a sense in which being, I guess, a soulful exhibitionist is a, is a good thing. I want to reveal who I am. I want to expose who I am. One of the major vehicles that enable them to be transparent is they were unashamed. Now, what that really means is that they were comfortable in their own skin. Uh, they didn't feel like they had to prove themselves. Uh, they didn't have to. They didn't struggle with feelings of inferiority or, or um, sup superiority. Uh, they were they were at peace with themselves. 
Now, there's very little things that are as kind of endearing as being around somebody who's really comfortable in their own skin. They're not constantly trying to posture, manipulate, or create an image, or put something on. They're able to just be and be themselves. <clears throat> and they didn't have to um, paste and cut and edit who they were in order to elicit a favorable reaction or avoid a negative one from this other person. They could just simply present themselves. They were also capable of listening to the opposing position without um, feeling threatened by it and um, were able to enter into the position of another, realizing that in some respects they personally had something to gain by embracing it. So we see in this first marriage a couple who were authentic, transparent, and present who, about who they were, and they were respecting and honoring this person who was so opposite from them, who did life so differently. This is what God had in mind. And the reason that this couple was capable of doing that is this. They didn't come into their marriage looking for love. This is a couple who had experienced a profound relationship with their maker. Now, we're told that every day Adam would meet with God in the garden. And if you can imagine, Adam and Eve were the primary beneficiaries of this creation that they had been a part of. And God had made this for them. And they were able to celebrate in the gift of each other that they had. And so they knew how deeply loved they were. They never had a question about that. As a result, they came into the relationship from fullness and not from emptiness. Now, unfortunately, this state of bliss didn't last a long time. Because if we continue to read down in Genesis 3, we see the, the introduction of the serpent. And Satan, who was came in the form of the serpent, began interacting with the first couple in a way that caused them to doubt and challenge three things. God's word, God's way, and God's will. And if we look at the conversation he had, the first thing he did was cause them to question God's word. <clears throat> or the word of their lover. Did God say? So he's he's beginning to say, is this what really, he's not beginning to say, he's saying, is this really what God's saying? Did God say? And so now they begin to question his word. Secondly, is surely you'll not die? So they begin to question his way. In other words, God really may not really know the best way here, and, you know, he's probably not necessarily being straight with you about it. Surely you're not going to die. And then the last thing he says is, the day you eat from it, you'll be like God. And what he's saying is, look it. Maybe there's another way. Maybe there's another plan for you to get where you may want to go. And so they're beginning to question God's will. <clears throat> The net effect is that the relationship of trust between Adam and Eve and their lover begins to become dismantled. And they begin to question something that until then they had never really thought about. Is God really good? Can God be trusted? Does God really want what's best for us? And do we really need to follow him? Now the seeds of fear, doubt, 
and threats were planted in the garden of their minds. Now, what both God and Satan knew that Adam and Eve didn't at that point is that fear makes us self-absorbed. That's one of the reasons why God wanted to protect them from this experience. Because, and, and it's one of the reasons God wanted to protect them from the experience, and Satan wanted to plunge them into it. Because the only loyalty of fearful people is to their own self-interest. See, Satan wanted them to get their focus off their lover and each other and put their focus on themselves. He wanted them to begin to become self-absorbed, and the best way to do that is infuse their lives and plunge their lives into the world of fear. That's one of the primary reasons, I think, that we're told do not fear over 350 times in Scripture. First of all, because it's going to be a regular experience as we as we travel through life. And secondly, because what we're told is don't let fear get the best of you. Unfortunately, most of the time fear gets the worst of us. And it defines and controls and dictates where we go. Now, our natural assumption is to think that when something feels bad, it must be or that something is going wrong. So whenever we experience anxiety and tension, we think that something is going wrong or something is bad or the person that's causing it is a bad person. But that's not true. Anxiety and tension are simply signals that life is requiring more from us than we have the ability to respond to it. Anxiety and tension are signals that life is requiring more from us than we have the ability to respond to. Also, that we can't, anxiety is indicating an area in our lives that we can't handle. If we go back and look at Karen and Steve, Steve can't handle it, but Karen can't handle it when Steve isn't doing what she wants him to do. See, Karen, and Terry, maybe I can get that next PowerPoint slide. Um, and see, what we have on the right is what life requires of it. In other, in other words, if life is requiring a plate that's this big, but the plate we're eating off of and the plate of resources is only this big, we can see the discrepancy between the two. And then let's go to the next slide, if we can. And the difference between the two will be experienced as tension and anxiety. Karen can't handle when Steve isn't doing the way life the way she wants. Karen has never learned how to handle and learn how to love someone and be close to someone who isn't doing life her way. Now, I would like to say that if we are only with people who do life our way, we've never really even begun to enter into the experience of what it means to really love another. All we're really doing is just kind of indulging in our own narcissism. It's not until we are with somebody who's not like us that we begin to do the work of love. Steve, on the other hand, doesn't know how to be strong when he's, when he's getting a disapproving reaction. He doesn't know how to handle himself in the face of a disapproving reaction. And so he experiences tension and anxiety because he can't handle learning how to stand, be honest and straightforward about himself in the face of disapproval. Now, anxiety and tension then leaves us with a challenge because 
it's either going to leave us with a challenge that, that in which we use the experiences of anxiety and tension to drive us apart from each other, and we'll be driven apart by employing one of two toxic solutions. And I'll talk about that in just a second. Or the second thing anxiety and tension will do is by exposing something in us that hasn't learned how to respond to life and, and respond to what life is requiring from us, it'll drive us into a recognition of our need for a deeper experience of growth and maturity. Karen <clears throat> needs to learn how to love people, how to love someone who isn't like her. Steve needs to learn how to be strong in the face of a disapproving reaction. Now, toxic solutions are instinctive responses to anxiety and tension that require the elimination of one or both sides of an issue. And there are two primary toxic solutions. I'm going to refer to these as maximizers and minimizers, um, respectively. Now, maximizers are people who tend to make themselves known, but they tend to dishonor others. They tend to criticize, demand, judge, and overwhelm or control those who don't think like them. What they don't do is, well, maximizers tend to keep from seeing others. Remember I said there were two different responses that are characteristic of hiding that occurred as a result of the um, fall. Actually, I think, I think I may have missed that. Um, let me go back one minute one minute, because I, I think it's important to understand that there were several consequences of the fear and distrust that occurred in the garden as a result of the fall. The first one is the control now became a huge issue. Um, who is going to have control of my life became the overriding question in their minds. Instead of feeling comfortable abandoning the control of their lives to their maker, they now began to question who would be a viable source for that. And so control became an a huge issue. Um, they were no longer at peace with each other in the midst of their opposing positions. They were at odds with each other. Where once harmony and unity had described their marriage, a power struggle now ensued. And thirdly, their attitude about nakedness had changed. They were no longer being vulnerably transparent. Now they were looking for ways to hide. And the hiding took place in one of two ways. The first was a refusal to be present and make themselves known. And um, along with that, they refused to be honest and open about themselves and take responsibility for themselves, but instead blame someone else for the situation in their lives. And the second is, instead of honoring and relating to each other as a significant other, they began to relate to the others an object for their gratification. So we can see in Adam, Adam's response went from, what an unbelievable gift you've given me in this woman, She's so awesome to, you're the one that put her in my life. I didn't have anything to say about it. I mean, my whole life is in the mess it's in because of her. She, she was no longer his lover. Now she was an object for his gratification who wasn't providing it. So now if we go back to maximizers, maximizers are people who operate their, whose, whose functional operational way of hiding is to keep from seeing other people as they are. So you can see with maximizers, if we can go to the next slide, Gary, 
Okay, intimacy involves two processes. We see here two different people, person number one in the blue, person number two in the white, each has a holy space or an authentic self, which consists of how they think, feel, and act. Intimacy involves two processes, making ourselves known or being naked, and honoring another person or being open to knowing another person as they are. This is as close as two people should ever be. Okay? And so there are two functions in intimacy. To come to the relational line and be present about who I am. And to stay on my side of the relational line and not cross over and try to make the other person into who I want them to be. So now if we can go to the next slide, Terry. <clears throat> what we can see is that maximizers tend to violate the second principle of intimacy. They tend to cross over the relational line when they're anxious and distressed. Maximizers, under the influence of anxiety, make themselves known, but they have difficulty honoring others and knowing them for who they are. The problem is that what most maximizers really, really want is they want to feel wanted and chosen, and maximizers are really driven by the fear of being alone. And they're also driven by the fear of being out of control. So what, one of the things that happens is intimacy is now impaired because tension and anxiety are no longer allowing these two people to know and be known and to be open to knowing. Now we see maximizers under the influence of anxiety compromising the relationship of knowing because they tend to hide themselves Hide the other person from themselves. They don't want to have to deal with it. That's what we see Karen doing. Karen didn't really want to know Steve as he was. Karen wanted Steve to be the person he was. She wanted him to be. Minimizers, on the other hand, we can go to the next slide, are people who basically, under the influence of anxiety, have difficulty making themselves known, but they do honor others. In other words, they let others be, and they... They want to know others, but they have a hard time showing up. They have a hard time being present. And the way minimizers tend to deal in relationships is they tend to be appeasing, accommodating, acquiescing, and submissive. But I'm not talking about submissive in the biblical sense. I'm talking about submissive that's born out of fear. A fear that what would happen if I really showed up as me? I wouldn't be accepted. I would be rejected. Now, because of time, I'm going to cut this short right now, and I'll pick this up later. But I want to talk just for a minute. I just want to say something very, very quickly about this so that you're not left hanging. And that is this. Anxiety and tension and fear are what took us out of the garden. Doubt and mistrust are what took us out of the garden, and they're what take us out of the garden of our marriages. Part of the reason for this is because we put the weight of our fear and our insecurity onto our spouse in order to make us feel secure. Maximizers do it by trying to change their spouse into the person they want, because they think if they do that, See, they may end up imposing their will on the other person, but they may do it at the expense of the other person's heart. See, Steve, Karen was imposing her will. 
But Steve wasn't drawing closer to her. In fact, he was becoming more internally resistant to her. He was externally complying and internally resisting. And so the whole purpose of relationship was being, she was actually, Karen was shooting herself in the foot. Steve, on the other hand, was shooting himself in the foot because what he really wants to be loved, but he refuses to make himself known, and so consequently he doesn't ever feel known and loved or accepted because his fear of rejection, his fear of losing control are so great that he presents an image rather than a self. And there's only one way that we can really be able to begin to manage anxiety and tension. The first is to realize that it's normal. It's not something bad. So when we feel anxiety and tension, it's not to try to get rid of it or eliminate it. It's to accept the fact that it's there. It just means that two people are there. Recognize their normal side effects in, er in every relationship. Second thing is to become increasingly anxiety tolerant. You know how you develop a tolerance to any substance? Increased levels of exposure to it. So really what we need is we need to be more married, not less married. See, we see, we see Steve and Karen as two people who are trying to become less married. She, she wants to see less of him, and he wants her to see less of himself. But neither is willing to be seen for themselves. So we need to be more married because if we're more married and more of us shows up, then we'll experience more anxiety and tension. But there's only one way we can do that, and that's to know that we are profoundly loved. And there's a verse that I think will speak to both minimizers and maximizers in Revelation 3.20. And that verse says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now look at the preconditions for intimacy. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm present. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, in other words, I'm going to wait for a response. I will, I'll come in and dine with him and he with me. I won't barge in when there's not a response. I'll wait. I'll honor your choice. I won't impose my choice on you. I'll honor your choice and honor your position because maximizers need to know that their lover will be present and minimizers need to know that their choice will be honored. And so Jesus speaks to both the fear and the anxiety of the maximizer and the minimizer when he says, I will be present and I will be honored and I will honor and I will not force myself. And because of that, if we're going to really be able to get back to the original plan and be naked and unashamed, one thing we need is a deeper conversion in our heart of the experiential reality of God's love. Not just a cognitive concept, but as an experiential reality. And I think it leaves us in a place where we can ask God to make his love more real in a way that we know, in a way that we need in order to be able to respond in a way that's open to our spouse.